Psalms. And we're in Psalm 90 tonight. Psalm 90. Father, thank you for your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your word, for the encouragement and inspiration that it brings. Lord, we pray tonight that you would again instruct us and lead us and guide us. Lord, as we just immerse our minds and our hearts in your word, may your truths just permeate our lives, challenge our assumptions, change our thinking. Lord, inspire our faith, deepen our commitment to you. That's our desire. And we pray that tonight all that could be accomplished and even more through your wonderful word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the book of Psalms is actually five books. And there's an interesting theory behind their division. The Hebrew rabbis related the book of the Psalms to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In fact, a casual glance reveals that the lengths of these five sections of Psalms are similar in proportion to the length of the five books of Moses, the first five books of your Bible. Let me elaborate on this a bit. Psalm 1 through 41, the first book of the Psalms, corresponds with Genesis, and they are called the creation Psalms. Many of these Psalms refer to God's glory in nature and to mankind in general. And the major author in this section of Psalms is King David. Psalms 42 to 72 shadow the book of Exodus. They're called the deliverance psalms. Their major authors are David and then also the sons of Korah, which which also had an interesting role there at the Exodus. Psalms 73 to 89 link to Leviticus. And the dominant author here is Asaph, who was a Levite, Leviticus, and who was a worship leader. These are called the Sanctuary Psalms. Psalms 90 through 106, and we'll begin this section of Psalms tonight, they track with the book of Numbers. They're called the Journey Psalms. You remember Numbers recounts the 40 years that the Hebrews wandered in the wilderness. And so it's no accident that this section of Psalms begins with a song of Moses. The fifth and final book, Psalms 107 to 150, sort of parallels with Deuteronomy. They're known as the prophetic psalms, and they're attributed to David and to another fellow by the name of Anonymous. It's all an interesting theory to consider, is it not? This parallel of these these books of the psalms. Well, Tonight, we begin the fourth book of the psalms, Psalms 90 through 106, and we begin with Psalm 90. This is a psalm attributed to Moses. It was probably written shortly before his death, near the end of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert. By the way, this would make it the oldest of all of the psalms. In fact, next to Job, Psalm 90 is probably the oldest passage in your Bible. The psalm begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place. What a wonderful thought. You've been our dwelling place. You know, the word dwelling place could be translated den. And, and I love this picture. I guess today you don't, they don't call it dens anymore. It's called the family room. But in, in, when I, we were growing up, it, we had the den. We had the living room, and then we had the den. And, and I love this picture because the living room was always kind of cold. And it was kind of formal, and mom never wanted it messed up. And you couldn't bring your toys out into the living room, you know. You had to make sure the living room always kind of stayed intact, you know. But whenever you wanted to have fun, whenever you wanted to let your hair down and just have a good time and just kind of let it all hang out, you went to the den. I want you to take that and go to the den. And we would go and spend wonderful hours of fun and play and communion with each other and just, just family time in the den. Now, I love this picture here. The psalmist says that, Lord, you have been our den. You've been our family room for all generations. You, Lord, are where we go to play. You, Lord, are where we go to be comfortable. You're you're where we go where we can let our hair down and we can really be ourselves. Lord, you are our cozy place. Isn't that great? God wants us to relax and be able to have fun and to enjoy God and enjoy each other in his den. He is our dwelling place. He says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever 
you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Notice this. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning. He has no end. You know, the Hebrew word everlasting means vanishing point. Think back beyond the vanishing point, and there's God. How far can you think back? Well, sometimes I can't think back more than 10 months before it all kind of gets blurred. Sometimes 10 days. But think back 10 years ago. Try to think back 10,000 years ago. Try to think back 10 million years ago. Think back as far as you can until you can't think any further, and there's God. Then turn around and think ahead. Go forward until the timeline fades into eternity, and once again, there's God. You know, the Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo was the first person to think of eternity not just as infinite time, but as a place outside of time. You know, Augustine reasoned that time was an entity created with the rest of creation, and thus God was not part of time, but He was separate from time. Modern physics and Einstein's theory of relativity, relativity have validated Augustine, but his conclusions were drawn from Scripture. You know, Christianity is the only religion that ever spawned serious scientific inquiry. Animism, the religion of, of the pagans, it taught an enchanted world. It, it kind of envisioned the rivers and the rocks all inhabited by spirits. Nature was controlled by goons and gremlins. Then the polytheistic religions came along with their pantheon of gods. Storms and lightning bolts were attributed to the whims of the gods. Only Christianity postulated an ordered universe with predictable laws subject to reason and to examination. You know, often today Christianity and science are pitted against each other. This couldn't be any further from the truth. There would be no such thing as science if it had not been for Christianity. Well, verse 3 tells us, You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. Did this verse inspire Peter? You remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8? He said, with the, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. You know, apparently a timeless God views time much differently than we do. God has a perspective that is not ours, that is all his own. Think back, a thousand years to God is as one day, is as a night watch. Think back. A thousand years. You know, a thousand years ago, the first crusade was launched. The feudal system was at its zenith. The Chinese had just invented gunpowder. A thousand A.D. was 300 years before the compass was invented. It was 400 years before the printing press. It was 500 years before Columbus discovered the New World. I mean, think of the advancements and the rulers and the discoveries that have occurred on planet Earth since. So much has happened. And yet to God, just yesterday, a thousand years is as one day. No, no wonder our impatience has so little effect on God. <laughs> He says, you carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it's cut down and it withers. To God, a thousand years is as one day. In contrast, humans possess the longevity of grass. You possess the longevity of grass. Pretty short, huh? Especially when your grass gets growing, you start cutting your grass once a week. Just remember, that's the longevity of your life, about once a week, and compared to God. He says, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. 
we finish our years like a sigh. Here, verse 9 in the old King James Version. All our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. In other words, our lives are like a rerun. At the end of the day, there's nothing really new. Our secret sins are in reality common sins. The culmination of our lives is a sigh. We caused a yawn. At the end of the day, when your life is over, you will have caused a yawn. I mean, a godless life is utter futility. He says, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. You're getting the impression that eternity is what matters? That our time here on this earth is really for one thing, and that's to determine where we're going to spend eternity? This is our opportunity to know God, and to find salvation through Him, through Jesus. You know, Psalm 90 was written around 1445 B.C., long, long time ago. And notice, Moses expected the average person to live about 70 years. He says, you avoid danger and you might make it to 80. You know, today, the average American lifespan is 73 for men and 79 for women. It's a surprise that 3,500 years of medicine has bought us an extra three years. But compared to eternity, our lifespan, it's just a puff of breath on a cold morning. Think of your 70-year lifespan as a 16-hour day. If you're 20 years old, it's already past noon. Nick, it's past lunchtime for you, bub. It's 1234 if you're 20 years old. If you're 30, it's 251 in the afternoon. At 40, it's quitting time, man. It's 508. At 50 years old, you've just finished the nightly news. It's 725 p.m. Man, I've just watched Walter Con Well, he's dead. That's how old I am. 50 years old. But it's like 725 p.m. At 60, the kids have gone to bed. It's 9.42 at night. And then finally at 70, man, it's midnight. Life is short. Verse 11 asks God, Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days. Man, do you get the point? Make your days count. Make the short life that you've been given count for Jesus Christ and for God's kingdom. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Several years ago, the oldest person on earth was a woman in Arles, France, known as Jean Clement. And on her 120th birthday, someone asked her, What kind of future do you expect? And she replied, A short one. She spoke for all of us. Life is short. Another older lady was asked about her plans for the future. She responded, honey, at my age, I don't even buy green bananas. That's why we need to redeem our time. We need to number our days. We need to use our time wisely. Benjamin Franklin was the one who said, do you love life? Then do not squander time, for that's the stuff life is made of. As the poet puts it, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You know, so many of us come to know Jesus later in life, but how much better it is to know Him from an early age. You know, if you've come to know Christ early in your life, you've been spared a lot of heartache and a lot of headache. You'll be able to experience a lifetime of satisfaction. I, I love what D.L. Moody said one night when he came home from a meeting and his wife asked him how it went. He said, well, two and a half people were saved tonight. She said, oh, two adults and one child? He corrected her, oh, no, two kids and one adult. 
The kids have a whole life now to live for Jesus. The adults wasted a large portion of his. He says, make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And notice Moses has the children in mind. He asked God to show his glory to the children, to the next generation. He wants to pass this faith along. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, though we're not told, Psalm 91 is also believed to be another psalm of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 27 provides an outline that might have been used for Psalm 91. These are the words of Moses The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. That sort of sums up Psalm 91. Verse 1 begins, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Don't you love that song, The Secret Place? God has a secret place that we can go. You know, fellowship with God is our secret place. It can't be seen by the material world. It's an invisible refuge where we can go into our heart and we can find that secret place and we can have a fellowship with God. But, it, but it's secret. It's, it's our special place. The world around us doesn't know about this place. The world around us doesn't see this place. You know, we talk about God's love and God's peace and God's glory and God's power and people look at us as if we're describing little green Martians. You know, what, what are you talking about? I love Psalm uh, Colossians 3, verse 3. It says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life with Christ, it's hidden from the world around us. There is this secret place that, that we all can run to, that we all can know. It's under the shadow of the Almighty. He says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. You know, before shotguns, birds were caught in a snare. And so here the psalmist is praising God for for springing his trap, allowing him to escape. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Like a mother hen who shelters her chicks, God is the shield for those who trust in Him. Remember during His last week, Jesus stopped while walking up the Mount of Olives. He he was looking over the city, and there He cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. God wants to gather us under his wings. He wants to protect us and love us, but we have to be willing. We have to go to the secret place. You know, African inspectors were going through some debris after a terrible, terrible forest fire, and they found a mother bird sitting on her nest. Her body had been scorched and charred, And the inspector was about to walk away when he heard a little noise. And so he walked over and he kicked over the bird, the corpse of the the burnt and charred bird. And to his surprise, he found under her a, a little brood of baby chicks, still alive, chirping away. Despite the heat, despite the flames, the mother had stayed faithful to her chicks. She had died saving them. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He's died saving us. And now it's under his wings that we find refuge. But we're told, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. You shall not be afraid. Do you know Jesus tonight? Do you go to the secret place? Do you spend time in fellowship with God? Do you have this relationship with God? If you do, you shall not be afraid in the darkness of the night, in the danger of the day. 
Only, he says, a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. God provides a strong, strong protection. Do you go to the secret place? Is it your favorite place? Verse 11, For He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Words sound familiar? In Matthew chapter 4, Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and he tempts him to prove his deity with a dare. He says, throw yourself down. Prove that you're the Son of God. And then he adds, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan quotes scripture. He quotes these very verses from the psalm. The temptation here was to showboat. He's saying, oh, create a scene, Jesus. Do this spectacular, Jesus. Prove that you're the Son of God. And Jesus countered Satan's suggestion with God's word. He too quoted scripture, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. But Jesus quoted it in context. He said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, God isn't a little trick dog. You don't just teach God to roll over whenever you command. God doesn't respond on demand. God doesn't do dares, okay? God calls the shots. God's the one in control. Jesus is saying, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Well, verse 13, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. The psalmist here is describing God's protection. But again, in light of what Satan suggested to Jesus, God's protection isn't permission to invite danger. You know, there are snake handlers in the backwoods of Kentucky that quote this verse to justify their dance with death. But understand, their flirtation isn't faith, it's foolishness. What he's saying here is that in the normal course of life, we'll face unavoidable dangers. And God promises to protect us. But that doesn't guarantee that God will save us from our stupidity when we invite danger into our lives. Mark 16 verse 18 promises God's protection to those who traveled to exotic places in order to preach the gospel. Jesus said to his disciples that they will take up serpents and they will drink anything deadly and it will by no means hurt them. We've been down to Haiti and anything you drink down in Haiti is a deadly poison especially the water. And, and so you've got to be very, very careful when, when you're there and, and, and you just pray ahead of time, Lord, you've promised to protect us, to watch over us. It talks about you'll take up serpents and it will by no means hurt you. This happened when Paul was shipwrecked on the Maltese island. You remember the story? In the last few chapters of Acts, he was collecting firewood when a poisonous viper was hiding among the sticks. And when he picked up the, the wood and he got it close to the fire, it woke the serpent up and the snake reached out and it bit Paul right in the, right in the hand. And, and the natives saw it. They knew it was poisonous and they were expecting Paul to drop over dead. They were so surprised when he just shook it off into the fire and went on about his business serving the other people. And the miracle, of course, provided Paul a platform to preach the gospel. This is what he's talking about here. This is the promise that God's giving us. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 91 is a song of protection for believers who retreat to the secret place and learn to trust in God. Well, Psalm 92 is entitled, A Song for the Sabbath Day. And it begins, It is good to give thanks to the Lord 
and to sing praises to your name almost high, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. I love that. He's saying, in the stillness of the morning, in the quietness of the night. You know, the morning, the night, they're both great times to seek the Lord. If you're a night owl or if you're an early bird, the psalmist says he has you covered. Both are great times to seek the Lord. How many early birds we got in the crowd tonight? Well, hey, early in the morning, what a sweet time to open up your Bible, grab a cup of coffee, sit there and just spend time with the Lord. How many night owls we had tonight? Yeah, I don't get going till about 10 o'clock. But boy, I love those hours, you know, right around midnight, even afterwards when everything's quiet, you know, the stillness of the night. That's my favorite time to, to bow my heart and head and, and seek the Lord. Either way, he says he's got you covered. He praises God on an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound. Man, this ten stringer apparently was a very expensive instrument. You had to rob a bank to buy one. It's called the lute. The lute. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands Oh, Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. Kind of goes without saying, doesn't it, that God's a deep thinker? God, your thoughts are so deep. You know, Isaiah 55 verse 9 reads, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And this shouldn't surprise us, really. You know, if a finite mind like yours or mine could figure out God, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? He certainly wouldn't be a God worthy of our worship. The fact that I can't explain God is one more reason I should praise him. I love what the French scientist Pascal said. He made a profound statement. He said, I love God because I know him, but I adore God because I cannot comprehend him. He says, a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. You know, the psalmist views the wicked the way I feel about my lawn, the little bit of lawn that I have. The grass springs up only to get mowed down. I'd be better off just paving my yard. The psalmist compares the wicked with the grass. He says, they exist to be cut down. He says, but you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. My strength, my horn. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies, my ears, Hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like cedar in Lebanon. The wicked are like the grass, while the righteous are like the palm tree and the cedar tree. And both are pictures of stability and permanence and blessing. You know, the palm is a, is a, is a picture of blessing and productivity, and usefulness. Every part of the palm gets used by the people who own it. From its fruit, to its leaves, to its bark, every part of the palm is precious and important and can be used. Cedar trees are a picture of strength. The cedars in Lebanon grow to 120 feet tall. They have a 40-foot circumference. Here he's asking us, do we want to be a tree, a blessing to others, a picture of stability and strength, or do we want to be a worthless pile of grass clippings? Do we want to be righteous, or do we want to join the wicked? I like verse 13. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. One of the keys to a productive prosperous, 
fruitful life is to make sure that you get planted in the house of the Lord. This is where people flourish. This is where believers flourish, in the courts of the Lord. Have you sunk your roots in God's house? Have you gotten connected with God's people? Have you gotten involved in God's work? The National Institute for Health Care Research performed a decade-long study on 2,700 different people to discover what social factors lowered mortality rates. In the end, only one influence was statistically significant. Guess what that was? Church attendance. In other words, being a part of a church meant that you would live longer. You know, church membership is not just biblical, it's healthy. Apparently, connections with other people, the support that you receive and the support that you give, the encouragement you receive from week to week, the care and nourishing that you receive from week to week, the care and nourishing that you give from week to week, these are all the things that help us grow and help us remain healthy, both socially, both spiritually, both physically. You know, humans are made for community. This is why the world has its clubs and its gangs and Facebook. You know, we need places where we can connect and where we can belong. God's plan to meet those needs are through His church. He continues, I love this, they shall still, and the older I get, the more I love it, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. This is my desire, Lord. The older I get, keep me fresh. Keep me flourishing. Help me to still bear fruit even in old age. You know, some companies sit you down when you turn 65. They, they have kind of a mandatory retirement age. But God has no such thing. God has no mandatory retirement. Isn't that wonderful? God wants us still bearing fruit in old age when we hit 70, when we get to 80, when we get to 85. Did you know that this can be the most spiritually fruitful time of your life? God keeps you fresh and flourishing, the psalmist said. Remember Moses didn't begin his ministry in Egypt until he was 80 years old. Remember that. You know, he spent the first 40 years spinning his wheels. He spent the second 40 years on the backside of the desert. It was the last 40 years that he delivered the nation from bondage and led them through the wilderness. That was his ministry, but it didn't begin until he was 80 years old. I love the folks who are getting older in age but are still young in heart. These are my favorite folks. Their relationship with God is fresh and current and active and fruitful. They care about us reaching younger people. You know, when we do a, a new song or something, they don't start bellyaching. Oh, man, why don't you sing the old ones, man? Now, these are the people who have vision. They, they see that, yeah, yeah, you know, this is what I like, but, you know, you're reaching young people. And that's what's important. That's what's going to carry the, the flame. And so you've got that freshness. You've got that flourishing going. You know, you're, you're on the one hand, you're getting older in age, but you're staying young at heart. This is what the psalmist has for us. Psalm 93, along with Psalms 95 through 100, are called the royal psalms or the coronation psalms. They talk about the Lord's reign over the earth. When the second temple was rebuilt, the Jews chose these royal psalms to be read in the temple. One was read each day of the week. Psalm 93 was sung on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. Friday was sort of the culmination of God's creative work, which is the subject of Psalm 93. And notice the psalm does not open, the Lord will reign. Notice that. It doesn't say the Lord will reign. It says the Lord reigns. Guys, this very second, God is on the throne in heaven. Yes, the world is in revolt, but God remains in charge. The Lord reigns. Apparently, He has chosen to be very patient with man, but He reigns, and one day soon, He'll return to exercise judgment. <laughs> That's right. 
We're told He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded Himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. In other words, from creation on, there has never been a day when God was not enthroned as king. Even the day when the crown he wore was a crown of thorns. And the throne he occupied was a cross. Even on that day, God still remained king. Jesus was still king. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waters. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Psalm 93 praises God, His majesty, His strength, His eternity. God is stronger and God is mightier than the ocean waves and the tides and the floods. Yet even more impressive is God's Word. Notice verse 5 closes the psalm. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. God's works are awesome, but oh, His Word. His Word is very sure. We can put our confidence and our trust in God's Word. Psalm 93. Then Psalm 95 through 100 are these regal royal psalms. They highlight God on His throne. God rules, but man rebels. And inserted in the midst of these royal psalms is a reminder of the wicked that God will one day be forced to judge. It's interesting that Psalm 94 was sung in the temple on Wednesdays, the day that we refer to as hump day. Wednesday is the middle of the week. You know, sometimes the evil and the frustrations that we're called on to face day after day get us down. And I don't know about you, but by Wednesday, sometimes I've had enough. Wednesdays are hard. Psalm 94, though, comes to the rescue. Rather than call fire and brimstone down on our boss at work or down on our coworkers around us, this psalm reminds us that vengeance belongs to the Lord. You know, Psalm 94 is another one of what we call the imprecatory psalms. The word imprecate means to curse. And I hope you realize by now that nobody was better at fashioning curses than the Jews. They were great at at putting together curses to place on their enemies and on, on God's enemies, on the wicked. Let me read to you a few of some of the very best rabbinical curses. These are from the rabbis. May the worms hold a wedding in your belly and invite their relatives. May all your teeth fall out except one so you can have a toothache. Now, I may be giving some of you ammunition. I I might not be able to be saying these things to some of you guys. May your enemies get leg cramps when they dance on your grave. May your teeth get angry and chew off your head. May your corns grow higher than Mount Sinai. That's bad. And may your bones be broken as often as the Ten Commandments. Oh, the Hebrews could be vile and bitter. But not Psalm 74. The the psalmist's desire is a righteous one. He sees people rebel against God. And what he asks is for God to right the wrongs. He says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands, Lord, as much as I might want to. I recognize, Lord, that vengeance belongs to you, not me. O God, to whom vengeance belongs, you shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. You know, the psalmist resists the urge to take matters into his own hands. Instead, he trusts God to render punishment as he sees fit and when he sees fit. He says, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? You know, the psalmist knows that God will judge the wicked, but he wonders, what is God waiting on? 
It's as if he's saying, God, now that I'm saved, now now that I know (laughs) that my soul is saved, what are you waiting on, God? Why don't you just bring fire down from heaven and fry all these other sinners? What are we waiting on now that I'm saved? I hope you recognize what's wrong with that sentiment. Oh boy, before we're regenerate, the patience of God was our salvation. We thank God for His patience. But now afterwards, the patience of God is just a real bothersome inconvenience, isn't it? God, why can't we just get on with these redemption days? You know, glory, Lord, that's what we want. Boy, we need to think, what about those around us who still need Jesus? God's patience was our salvation. God's patience can be their salvation. And it can be our opportunity to reach out to them with the good news. He says they utter speech. Literally, they belch or they spew. And they speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. My, the wicked, they ravage people and they ridicule God. Here's the proud man's arrogance. He thinks he's pulling the wool over God's eyes. He's pulling a fast one on God. He says, we do these things and the Lord does not see. I love how the psalmist responds. Understand, you senseless among the people and you fools When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? Only a fool would suggest that the creator of the eye can't see for himself. That the creator of the ear can't hear what's going on. You know, the human eye is the most complex piece of engineering known to man. Here's a description of your eye. The eye contains tens of millions of electrical connections. It can handle one and a half million messages at once. When we look at an object, light passes through the lens of the eye and is brought into correct focus on the retina. Covering less than the space of an inch, the retina contains 137 million light-sensitive receptor cells cones and rods. The tiny eye muscles move about 100,000 times a day to focus. A man would have to walk 50 miles a day to give his legs similar exercise that his eye gets every single day. Isn't that amazing? You know, Charles Darwin once said, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. He went on and he tried to reason it out, but he knew that the notion was silly, that something as complex as the eye could ever come about through random chance and through natural selection. In another place, Darwin wrote to a friend, he said, to this day, the eye makes me shudder. No pun intended. Even Darwin knew it was too complex to have evolved. He says, verse 10, He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. Psalmist could have been thinking of Darwin, couldn't he? Futile are his thoughts. Futile means breath. God knows that man's thoughts and theories are nothing but hot air. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked, For the Lord will not cast off His people, nor will He forsake His inheritance. God is faithful to His people. You know, when the great reformer, Count Zinzendorf, was hauled before trial, before Frederick the Great, the Prussian king, he was asked, give me one infallible proof for the inspiration of the Scriptures. Count Zinzendorf replied, the Jew. For 1950 years, the Jews have lived in dispersion all across the planet. Objects of hatred and persecution, even mass genocide. A people without a home, a land, a temple, a language, and yet God has ensured their survival. He has not cast off His people. In fact, one day a pit will be dug for all Israel's enemies, the psalmist says. 
but judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Boy, the psalmist has grown tired in his stand against evil. He's become a weary warrior. He's been mocked. He's been laughed at. He's been constantly challenged. You may be able to relate to him. He tells us what sustained him. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. When I slip, it's God who holds me up. I love what Paul says to the Galatians. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So, hang in there. Did you hear that? Somebody needs to hear that tonight. Here's a message for somebody tonight. Hang in there. Verse 20. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. In the preface to Psalm 95, the author is anonymous. But when we get over to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 7, there we find this psalm quoted and it's attributed to David. So David wrote Psalm 95. This psalm is also one of the royal psalms and it was used in the dedication of the temple after the Jews had returned to Babylon or returned from Babylon. Psalm 95 is in two parts. Verses 1 through the first half of verse 7 is worship. Verse 7 on through the end of the chapter is a warning. Worship and warning. God's people are both praising God, but they're also provoking God, and so they need to be warned. He says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The height of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. In His hands formed the dry land. Man, understand the scope of God's dominion. It extends from the tallest mountains to the ocean depths. I mean, Moses went to the top of the mountain to see a bush that burned yet was not consumed. And there he found God. Jonah was thrown overboard in the midst of a storm at sea. He was even swallowed by a great fish. And who knows how deep he was taken into the ocean belly. But even there he found God. Both the sea and the dry land belong to the one true God. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. What comforting words. Notice the pasture belongs to us. Contentment is our shepherd's goal. He wants us to graze. He wants us to lie down in green pastures. But notice, we're only to chew in His pasture. He says, we are the people of his pasture. There are other pastures. And sometimes we look at the other pastures and the grass grows greener over there. But understand, where the grass is greener, the water bill is higher. There's a price to be paid. And understand, that green grass is often too rich. It makes us sick to our stomach. Understand that. Hey, we are the people of His pasture. This is where we'll find contentment. This is where we'll find rest. In His pasture. Notice also the contrast here in verses 5 and 7. The same hands that form the dry land now feed and tend the sheep. Our mighty Creator is also our gentle shepherd. Verse 7 tells us, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Here's this warning I told you about. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, 
though they saw my work. You know, the Hebrew word translated here, rebellion, is Meribah. And the, and the word trial is Masa. And it was at the waters of Masa and Meribah that the Hebrews grumbled and complained. And they tried God's patience. Remember, the Lord quenched their thirst with water from the rock. But He also took note of their contentious attitude. And as a result, eventually a whole generation of grumblers were sentenced to die outside the promised land. Psalm 10 says, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Because of their unbelief, the generation of Hebrews that exited Egypt died in the wilderness. They turned a two-week trip into a 40-year death march. That's what unbelief will do for you. You think you're taking a shortcut, but it's not. It's a detour. The shortest path between two distances is God's will. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews, he uses these verses in a very intriguing way. In Hebrews chapter 4, there it points out that verse 7 of the psalm, where David says, today, if you hear his voice, you can enter God's rest. Emphasis on today. The writer of Hebrews says that this means Joshua never entered God's rest. Even though the second generation entered Canaan. They didn't taste of God's restfulness, the peace and prosperity that He had planned for them. If they had, David writing in this psalm some 450 years later wouldn't have said, today, if you enter into my rest. In other words, the rest was still being offered. It was still being made available to God's people. When the Israelites came into, eat and came into Canaan, they weren't entering into God's rest. Physically, they were entering into a promised land, but they never came to a place of rest in their hearts, a place of peace in their hearts, where they, where they trusted God and rested in God and found that soul satisfaction that God promises. And that's why David, 450 years later in this psalm, is making the same invitation. He's saying, today, if you come in to my rest, if you trust me, you can enter into my rest. And the writer is pointing out that the rest of God is still available to God's people. Not just in David's day, but to anyone in any age who ceases from his toiling and starts trusting in Jesus' work for him and the Spirit of God's work in him. If you will trust, you can enter into God's rest today. Today. And there we have Psalm 95.